Okay, this morning we are studying um, our last segment here in our systematic theology uh, study and kind of fitting our last topic within this great study of systematic theology we've been doing for the past 13 weeks. Um, Our last study will be the study of the last things. And so I've gone ahead and written up here, uh, you see this word eschatology, and this is the big fancy theological word that's used to talk about the study of the end times, basically, of what will happen last. Um, and everyone kind of has an eschatology. They have some understanding of, you know, Christians and non-Christians alike. They all believe that something's going to happen, ultimately, right? Whether it's some cataclysmic, you know, the sun eats the earth or, you know, whatever else. Um, everybody believes in something about the last times. Uh, so this comes from these Greek words, uh, eschatos, which means last or the ending, um, and logos, which means the word, idea, or study. Um, and so you can see easily eschatology, and that's, it just means the study of the last, um, literally. So as we kind of launch into this, thinking back throughout all of history, you can remember probably or you've heard about different guys throughout the history of the world who have um, set up and said, hey, I know when the world's going to end. Um, and so they'll say, you know, on this day, at this time, everything's going to end. And uh, specifically, you can remember, I don't know if you've heard of um, the William Miller group. Ultimately, they kind of became what is today Seventh-day Adventist, um, but originally wasn't quite so uh, <laughs> on track. Um, he had discovered this thing called Kingdom Arithmetic, and he figured out that the world was going to end, that Jesus was going to come back on March 21st, 1842. Um, and he was wrong. And everybody was like, he's like, well, I just messed up my, uh, my math. And so he's like, no, it'll be 1843. And he was wrong. And so he's like, no, 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 also, I'm sorry. Uh, this time, I'm for sure it's going to be October 22nd, 1844. And, uh, and people still believe the guy. We're so clear in following him that, like, in the town in Vermont that he was from, there were people within his church and his group, and they closed down their shops. There was, like, a sign in a shop window that was like, this shop will close in honor of the King of Kings who will appear about the 20th of October. Get ready, friends, to crown him Lord of all. And these people really believed that here was going to be Jesus coming back on this day, and they knew for sure. People quit their jobs. People gave away everything they owned. They were ready, and they just went and gathered in fields in white robes and waited. Um, and they waited all day, and they waited into the night, and nothing ever happened. Um, finally, <laughs> a little bit later, um, he died, and on his tombstone it read, at the appointed time, the end shall be. Um, so you can kind of see from that that he realized maybe, <laughs> um, what was I doing trying to figure all this out? Um, whenever Jesus is ready to come back, he's going to come back. All right, so um, let's just preface this with uh, a lot of people find this whole discussion really, really divisive, and it can be. Um, it's one of those theological troubles that uh, Christians have disagreed about since the beginning of the church. And it's one of those theological troubles that we'll probably continue disagreeing about until Jesus does come back. Um, and so we don't know, ultimately. We, we don't know for sure how this all is going to work out. But there are a few things that we do know for sure, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Okay, so first, if you look on your outline, you see the first thing is that the second coming of Christ. Okay, so when the end happens, this is part one. Okay, so a few things about his, his coming. 
Jesus will indeed come back. It's a literal return of Christ. It's not some idea. It's literally he will come back. Um, if we look in, for instance, Matthew, it says, and Jesus on the Mount of Olives telling, talking to the disciples, at that time the, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Okay, so, um, and you also hear about um, this phrase, the day of the Lord. Um, you can see that even in Old Testament prophecy, these, this discussion about the day of the Lord coming and the, the judgment of people, all that stuff. Um, so if we look in Zephaniah, for instance, it says, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, because they have sinned against the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Okay, so just another example. Even the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to the ultimate day of the Lord that would take place. First thing we have to note, though, about the second coming of Christ is that There will be a personal and visible return. It won't be just his spirit. And there's this, especially in early Protestantism, there was this big idea, uh, very prevalent in a lot of churches, that um, it would basically be the aroma or air or uh, essence of Christ that would return to earth. Um, and through people learning to love like him and follow his teachings better and live more like, like Christ, um, that effectively his spirit, his way of life would return, and that would be the second coming. Um, that's not it. Uh, it's not just an imitation of his lifestyle or his, his ethic, his moral ethic that we're trying to bring back. No, the Bible teaches that the incarnation of the Son of God was not his last manifestation to men on earth in the flesh. Okay, John 14.3 says that he will come back, not his essence, he will. Again, if you look in Acts 1, right after the ascension happened, the angels come down and they, they're talking to the disciples and they say, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Okay. It's clear. If he's going in, coming down the same way he went up, it's not just going to be spiritual. He went up in a physical body, he's going to come back, come back in a physical body. Um, and on top of that, um, he will come in glory. And so it will be personal and it will be visible, not just to us, not just to the Christians, not just to those who are imitating him, but to the whole world. So it's one of those things where we have to recognize it will be visible to everyone. Look in uh, Revelation 1, and uh, John writes, Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Every eye. Every eye will see him. It's not, uh, not just for Christians. Likewise, if we look in uh, 1 Thessalonians, we can see that Paul says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Now, I don't think that Jesus could come down from heaven with a loud command and a voice of an archangel and a trumpet call, and there would be people who didn't hear it. Okay? This won't be one of those things where it's like, Oh, that happened yesterday? Okay. No, everybody's going to know when Jesus comes back. And he's really going to come back in the flesh. Okay? Second thing we have to know about Christ's coming.
the time of his coming is unknown. Okay? Nobody knows. No one knows the day or the hour. Um, you can look in several passages, but the, probably the big one that you kind of think of is uh, in Matthew 24 where Jesus says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So that means that even Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back in his person of the Trinity. Now, obviously, since he is God, he, he has a knowledge of that. But uh, as Jesus, as the Son, he doesn't know when he's coming back. It's up to the Father. Uh, and so some people kind of ask, well, why doesn't he just reveal it to us? Why doesn't God just say, okay, here's the day when I'm coming back, so we'd all know. I mean, that seems like a nice thing for him to do. Well, I would say that a big part of that is that the unexpectedness um, forces us to continue to be engaged in our life in a meaningful way um, and to be ready at all times and not just, you know, sin, 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 sin. Oh, he's coming back next week. We better get right now. Um, so having no knowledge of when he's coming back uh, forces us to always strive to be ready. Um, so a few more verses just real quick uh, to kind of drive this home. If we keep reading in Matthew 24, um, he says, Jesus says, Keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what, what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Uh, then you can think of the parable of the ten virgins, um, which drives on that whole point that you don't know when the bridegroom's coming, you better be ready, have enough oil in your lamps, right? Um, then if we keep going, looking, um, <laughs> okay, there are some problems, because some people say, well, wait a second, the Scripture's very clear that there are all these signs and wonders and things that will appear before Jesus comes back. Yes, that's true. So, you know, you think of the, well, there will be earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. Have you heard that phrase before? Um, and great catastrophes, and, um, and the world will get really, really bad. Isn't that a sign that Jesus is coming back? Well, for one, that's, you've been very, we've all been very hampered by the Left Behind series as far as our view of the end times. Uh, so, <laughs> so, yes, there are signs that will appear, but the trouble is that we don't know whether they have or not every time. So, you know, we're sitting here reading the newspaper and trying to interpret when Jesus is going to come back. And we can't be newspaper theologians. We can't just work off of what the news is telling us and try to guess. Like, okay, well, that, oh, there's that sign. That means he's going to come back soon, soon. Yes, he could come back right now. For all we know, every sign could be fulfilled in an instant, um, and he'll come right on back. Or it could be another thousand years. Point is, we don't know. Um, let me refine this quote real quick. Um, Wayne Gruden, here's, here's his talk about how the possible signs that would show his Christ is coming back. He says, uh, there's basically two ways to resolve the passages which are making like statements about whether or not certain signs are already fulfilled. He says, it is unlikely but possible that the signs have already been fulfilled and therefore we simply cannot know with certainty at any point in history whether all the signs have been fulfilled or not. This position is an attractive one because it takes seriously the primary purpose for the signs to intensify our expectation of Christ's return. With regard to the warnings to be ready, Christ could return at any time, and so we must be ready, even though it is unlikely that Christ will return right now, um, because it seems likely that there are still several signs to be fulfilled. But he could come back now, okay? So that's the thing. We must always be ready. Don't just sit there and watch the news waiting for the next sign to appear so that you can know more fully. 
It's not our business to know when Jesus is coming back. Okay, finally, last thing we need to talk about about the second coming of Christ, and I say last thing like this is all there is, but okay. Uh, Christians should long eagerly for Christ's return. Um, looking in Second Peter, um, Peter says, Since the day of the Lord will bring about destruction of the heavens, we should strive to be holy and to make every effort to be found blameless and at peace with God. Okay, so the point of all this is that we have hope, and it's rooted in Christ. His resurrection and his return is where our hope is. Uh, and so through expecting and through anticipating his return, we have hope that whatever misery we're in this day is going to be ended someday. Even if we die first, someday there will be uh, glory for us as well that we get to rejoice in. So regardless of the specific details of, of when Christ comes back, we should always respond the same. We should eagerly desire and long for Christ to return in his glory, um, and that is our overriding hope in all of our Christian walk. That's the most important thing for us. Okay, so that's the second coming of Christ. Now, moving on to the next thing on your outline, um, the millennium. And here's the troublesome one. Okay, the millennium is exactly what it sounds like. A millennium is a thousand years. And essentially, this whole discussion stems from a verse in Revelation. And I'll just read it for you. Revelation 22 through 5. An angel seized the dragon, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years were ended. And this is the first resurrection. Okay, so here's the trouble. Everybody goes, what are the thousand years? And when will Christ return in respect to those 1,000 years? That's the question we have to ask when it comes to the millennium. Okay, now if you want to, you have this other handout that has these little handy charts, and these are super helpful, uh, so please look at those with me as we're trying to work through this, because this, these are, you know, four ways to look at the millennium that have all been held very, very strongly by very, very sound theologians throughout all of history. So there's no way that we can go, well, I don't know. St. Augustine believed this one, so I'm going to go with that. Because if we look over here, Calvin thought this one. If we look over here, um, who else? I don't know. Other people believe other things. There's, there's great theologians who believe all of these. So we can't just say, well, this one's more likely, this one's more likely. There's good evidence and, and good ways to believe in all four of them. Okay, first one we're going to look at is post-millennialism. And I don't want to write the whole thing, so I'm going to shorten it to mill. You can see uh, from postmillennialism on your chart, basically, we're in the present age now. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. With his death, burial, resurrection, the church age was inaugurated. 
Okay, so this is the beginning of the spread of the gospel. The church goes out into all the world, preaching, teaching, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then, there's a certain point in time where Satan will be bound by Christ, and there will be a gradual increase in the growth of the church and a spread of the gospel where more and more and more people will become Christians, more uh, influence for believers in the church will change society, um, society will function as God intended, um, and so ultimately we'll kind of reach this age of peace and righteousness uh, where that will be the millennium. Okay? It doesn't have to be a literal thousand years, it's just this age in which the church has reached this wonderful rule over the whole earth and kind of established its kingdom, uh, and so we will reign uh, showering the world with goodness and justice for a thousand years, and then Jesus will come back and he will judge everyone. Separate the sheep from the goats, send some to their eternal punishment, establish a new heaven, new earth, and there's glory, there's heaven, there's happiness. Okay, so present age starts here. We're here. This is us on the timeline. At some point, we kind of launch into this, we're getting really good stuff, and then this is the millennium where Jesus rules through us. Then he comes back. He exacts his punishment. Some go to hell. Some go to heaven. He establishes a new heaven and new earth here. So this is Jesus coming back, but it's after the millennial reign happens, okay? So at this point, this is where Satan is bound. Does that make sense? I know this is like, kind of like, what? Okay, kind of nod with me if you're getting it. Everybody there? Okay. So that's post-millennialism. Um, some people who are strong on this one, you might think of um, St. Augustine. He was post-millennial. Um, also, B.B. Warfield. I'm sure you've heard of him. Um, the next one that we have to talk about is, and I'm sorry, I have to go through these really quick because there's a lot more to cover after these. This is just a, this is an overview if you want to learn more. This is a really interesting topic. I encourage you. Uh, there are great books on all of it, so go read more. I can recommend some if you want them. The next one is amillennialism. And basically, amillennialism is kind of similar to postmillennialism, except that it doesn't have a view of a certain time um, when Satan will be bound in the future and when the church will kind of rise to establishing the kingdom. Amillennialism would say, um, here is the cross, and at this point... The kingdom is established, okay? So this begins the millennium. So you have the millennium happening here all through the church age. So, you know, here we are in the span of time. We are in the millennial reign of Christ effectively because we are in the church age, which is the gospel spreading, the kingdom spreading. We're building the kingdom. That's the millennium. And then finally, Jesus comes back. Final judgment occurs, new heavens, new earth. I'm kind of partial to this one. This is probably where I would consider myself right now, although I don't know, that could change tomorrow. It's just very simple. It's a very simple way to look at it that, you know, Jesus come back, he started his kingdom that happens, and then he's just going to come back and it's all going to be over, and that's all there is to it. All right, so those are those two. Um, now, there is... an. Most of the time when you hear people talk about millennialisms, they'll say pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill. 
Those are kind of the three big names. But really, premillennialism, it's not fair to kind of group all of premillennialism into one category because there's really effectively two different groups. So we're going to first talk about classical or historic premillennials. And if you notice, all these little prefixes, all these are millennialisms, right? The post means Jesus comes back after the millennium. Uh, ah means that he, there isn't really much of a millennium. It just kind of is what it is. It's not a thousand years, obviously. Pre means Jesus comes back before the millennial reign. Okay, you can kind of see how these prefixes help you understand it. Okay, in classical, and this is on the back of your sheet, uh, you can see that these start to get a little more complicated. <laughs> uh, in classical premillennialism, um, there is the church age, um, which is what we're in now, still the same. We're always in the church age in all these views. Then there's some point in the future where there's going to be this fantastically great apostasy and a huge turning away from the church and the Antichrist will come to power. He will reign in that, you know, most people consider it seven years, although there's, you know, people say, well, it doesn't have to be exactly seven years. Okay, he reigns for a period of time. There's tribulation on the earth. Horrible things are happening. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Then Christ descends, but not entirely bodily. Okay, yes, he does. I'm sorry, this is classical. He comes down, he descends, he raptures out his people, the battle of Armageddon happens, destruction of the Antichrist, all that business, and then he binds Satan, and he rules on earth for a thousand years. Okay, so the big difference here is that in the premillennial views, Christ literally establishes his kingdom, an earthly kingdom, on the earth, and he rules on a throne on the earth. Okay, in postmillennialism, the church is kind of in his stead, ruling on the earth. And in amillennialism, the church is just being his kingdom throughout time. There is no Jesus sitting on a throne, ruling over the nations uh, as a king. In premillennialism, both of them, he actually literally sits on a throne. Okay, so um, during that millennium, we have the temple being rebuilt um, in Israel. Uh, you have all the rituals and things, priesthood restored. Um, and that gives this extra kind of second chance to the Jewish people. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of reason to see that within Scripture. We can see all these references to, you know, the different 144,000. You've heard that number before of, of the, the Jews that will be taken out. The, what do they call it? The um, remnant of Jews. So, yes. And so after that millennium is over, Satan gets loose. There's another period of apostasy turning away, more fighting, more terrible things, and Jesus finally says, no, stop. He judges everyone, sends the, the sinners to hell, and takes his people to heaven, and creates new heaven, new earth, eternal state for us. Okay. Ugh. Basically, here we are. Here's the cross. Here we are. Here's going to be a tribulation, and the Antichrist here. At some point, that stops. Jesus comes back. Jesus, hey. And then he reigns for a thousand years. Most people would say that this is a literal thousand years, although it doesn't have to be. Um, Jesus reigns for a thousand years. Then more apostasy. And then judgment. And I know this is a, just a simplified version of what you just saw, and then eternal. This is on your sheet. But maybe this can kind of be a more basic outline of it. Tribulation, Antichrist, at a certain point, 
Jesus comes back after the tribulation is done. He reigns for a thousand years. Then there's another period of apostasy. Then he exercises his righteous judgment and eternal life for everyone. Some in one place, some in another. Does that one make sense? Or? Okay, y'all are not giving me anything. Uh, maybe, almost there. Okay, so now we have finally dispensational premillennialism, which is probably the predominant view uh, around these parts. Um, if you walked up to somebody uh, on the, in Walmart and said, so when Jesus comes back, what's it going to look like? This is probably the view that they'll most likely spout off to you. Um, in terms of historical scope, this is brand spanking new. Um, it really didn't get started until the 1800s. Um, when the whole advent of dispensational came, dispensationalism came in uh, with uh, R.L. Dabney and, um, I'm sorry, John Nelson Darby, not Dabney. Well, I'm sorry, Dabney, I'm sorry. Um, and then you have these, in the 1900s, guys like, um, with the whole the late, late Great Planet Earth came out, um, and that book really pushed it to the forefront. And then you had um, the Left Behind series, which, uh, you know, is very, very, very much dispensationalist premillennials. Okay. And this one is the, the most... Convol- the, the irony here is that most people in the world believe the most complicated view of the end times that there is. This is by far the hardest one to get your head around, um, but it's so prevalent. Uh, it's just so popular. I mean, I grew up thinking this. All right, so once again, we start off, we're in the church age. Here's Jesus, here's us. We're in the church age. At some point, the righteous will be raised, and there will be a rapture. Okay, this is like a secret coming of Christ. Okay, so Jesus doesn't actually come back and set foot on the ground. He just comes and secretly takes away his people. Okay, so, and then if you weren't taken, you got left behind, right? the whole story okay so we have a rapture of so it's a secret return he doesn't actually step foot on the earth he just comes back and takes away his people um then you have a tribulation period seven years um antichrist is reigning this is very similar to the historic premillennialism um you have all the things in revelation that take place the pouring out of the the bowls of uh, you know wrath and everything like that Then, at the end of that seven years, Jesus actually comes back and steps foot on the earth, and that's when he battles Satan. You have the battle of Gog and Magog, and you know, all that stuff that's recorded in Revelation. Um, He binds Satan in this battle and subdues him, and he reigns for a thousand years on earth. All the things that happened in historical view happen here. We rebuild the temple. Jesus is sitting on a throne. He's ruling the nations. Then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed from his bondage, then the final battle happens, judgment of the wicked, new heavens, new earth. Okay, so rapture happens, then we have a tribulation here with the Antichrist and stuff, and then Jesus actually comes back, establishes his millennium, he reigns on earth, all that good stuff, and then Satan's loosed, He conquers him, oh, that's battle happening. And then, and then the judgment, and then new heavens, new earth. 
Yes, yes. Uh, important thing to note. In the dispensational premillennialist view, Jesus comes back once and raptures his people. He doesn't step foot on earth. It's silent. It's a quiet coming. Um, there is no trumpet blast. There are no angels singing. He just steals them away. And then the tribulation happens. Antichrist is there. And then, after the tribulation is done, Jesus really comes back and conquers the Antichrist and binds Satan. Yes. I think that part of why this is so attractive is because what happens, what's different? We're out of here before the tribulation. And I think that people really like the idea of, if I'm in the church, I don't have to go through that persecution stuff. I don't have to be here for that tribulation. I'm going to get raptured first. All the sinners can have fun with the Antichrist. uh, And then, you know... I don't have to worry about it. Um, all the rest of the views don't have that view. All the rest of them see that the tribulation is happening as part of the church age. It's just whether or not um, how the millennium is related to that tribulation is, is where the issue really happens. Okay, do you need me to kind of recap any of those uh, for your benefit? This is a lot less me lecturing to you and a lot more. I want some input. Do you, do you grasp these better than you did before, at least? <laughs> If I can get to that point, then I've done something at least. Okay. So where does our church stand on this stuff? Uh, We stand on, you better believe Jesus is coming back because he is. Um, This is not one of those issues where we break fellowship with you if you stand in one place or the other. Um, I'm probably, I'm fairly certain that at least three of these are represented in this room right now, uh, just from my discussions with different people. Um, And so... Maybe all four. I don't know. Are any of you post-millennial? Anybody? Okay. That one's a little more old school, not so, not so common anymore. Um, anyway, so let me just recap again some, some great thinkers uh, on, this, on these different sides. So we had uh, Augustine and B.B. Warfield who were post-millennial. Uh, Burkhoff and Calvin, uh, lots of the reformers were Amil. Uh, Don Carson, Al Mohler, uh, Wayne Grudem would be classical premillennialist. And then John MacArthur really disappoints me, and he is a dispensational premillennialist. Uh, I love John MacArthur, but I just don't know how he could get me so wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not right. I'm not supposed to say that. You can believe whatever you want to believe about this stuff. As long as you believe Jesus is coming back, and we <laughs> better be ready for it. Okay, non-essential doctrine to our Christian faith. Your salvation doesn't hang on when you think Jesus is coming back in relation to the millennial reign of Christ. That's all there is to it. Okay, but another thing that we have to uh, recognize is that there will be a final judgment. Notice that all of these views hold that in common. There will be a final judgment. Jesus will judge the nations, and he will send some people to hell and take some people to heaven. Okay, final judgment. Christ will be the judge. That's point number one. Scripture is incredibly clear about this. I won't even try to give you all of them because it would take too much time for me to point out all the times that the Bible says that he's going to be the judge. Uh, I would say Acts 17 points out in a big way, if you want a few verses to kind of help point, you could look at Romans 2, you could look at Revelation 20, Matthew 25, 1 Corinthians 3. I think those are on your outline, aren't they? Yes, yeah, so there's a whole bunch of good verses. Okay, so Christ will be the judge. Jesus himself will sit on the throne, and he will um, vouch for his people, 
and he will condemn those who are not his people. Number two, unbelievers will be, will be judged and condemned. Notice that last part, condemned. What does the scripture say about that? They're already condemned, right? Um, because of their rejection. So this isn't something new. It's not like they're going to get up there and, and suddenly, you know, like, oh, I'm being condemned now. Like, no, their, their sinful rejection of Christ has already condemned them. Jesus is just exacting the punishment. He's just, you know, slamming down his gavel and saying, yes, you are guilty. The crimes have already been committed. Um, you're already convicted. Well, not you, I hope, but the sinner is. <laughs> Unbelievers. Uh, we can look at uh, Romans 2. God will give to each man according to what he has done. For those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And, oh, I would not want to be on the side of the anger of Almighty God. Um, and this brings up the topic, which is a whole other thing, of hell. And we could go into different views about what hell really is. Suffice it to say, I believe, um, I believe this church would stand strong with saying, hell is a real place, it's an eternal place, and it's a really, really, really bad place. I think that's en- enough about that. It's not, uh, there's this annihila- annihilationist view, which says that when you die, uh, or when the final judgment happens, you just cease to be. Your spirit doesn't live on eternally. Um, I don't think that scripture says that at all. It's pretty darn clear that hellfire is forever, um, and it's not a good place to be. And then third, the believers will also be judged. And a lot of times we, we, we neglect to think about this part. Because we go, well, I'm good. I got my got my card, uh, Jesus saved me, and I don't have to worry about judgment. Well, it's not the same kind of judgment that uh, the unbelievers will go through where they're going to be condemned, okay? The first thing, the first aspect of this judgment is that God is going to judge us as being righteous and eternally reward us for our position as co-heirs with Christ. And that's not because of us, but that's because of him, right? So we will not be condemned. We will Pass from death into life. But the second sense in which we're going to be judged is on how we lived as Christians. And so we have these pictures in Scripture which talk about um, the varying degrees of rewards that we'll get based on how we lived our lives. Uh, we'll be judged for the works we've done. Second Corinthians. Uh, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This points out to us that God's grace is not a license to sin. So don't think that just because you've got that card in your back pocket when you stand at the throne that you're suddenly going to, you know, just be exempt from all, uh, all judgment. There's still things that must be accounted for that were done in your body. Ultimately, you're good. Uh, you've been declared righteous by Christ uh, through his death, burial, resurrection. You're taken care of, but your sins still count. Your sins still matter. And they still are offensive to a holy, righteous God. And so you will be judged based on those things. And uh, the deeds we've done, good and bad, will reflect our, you know, our place in heaven, our, our eternal state. 
Ultimately, though, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, The reward for being justified in Christ is that we are declared righteous through Christ in heaven. So we're good. Now, what will heaven look like? And that's kind of the last bit of this, the new heaven and the new earth. Look at me on time. I thought I was going to get bogged down in the millennial stuff. The new heaven and the new earth. Uh, I'll just read Revelation 21 to you. This is where we get the whole idea. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Okay. Heaven ultimately is a place where God most fully manifests his presence. It is his abode, you might think of. Um, heaven is an actual place. Just like hell is an actual place, it's not some symbol for just happiness. It's not some symbol for uh, dancing around and, and being joyful and eating food with, with uh, other Christians. Okay. Heaven is real. Uh, and it will happen for us, fortunately, graciously. Um, so while it's mentioned free, frequently in Scripture, we don't really know exactly what heaven's going to be like. Uh, we always get these pictures of the pearly gates and the streets paved with gold and the gemstones and the emerald walls. And um, Okay, I don't really, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that it's going to be all that fancy gold paved roads. Because, like, does God really care about gold? I mean, it's pretty... But I think there are probably even better things that he would... It will be more than we can imagine. Let me just put it that way. Like, if you picture Gold Streets, no. It's going to be a million times better than Gold Streets. There. Does that make it good? Think of, think of your favorite thing in the world and multiply it by infinity. As a kid might say. The most important thing about heaven is not what it's going to look like, not who's going to be there, not whatever else. It is that we will be with God in glory, um, worshiping him, praising him, reigning with him, rejoicing with him forever. Who cares what the streets are made out of? So, to recap everything we just talked about, the end times is a tough discussion, but... Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back in his body onto the earth. There will be a period of time in which he reigns. Whether you believe it's happening now, if it's going to happen, whether it's literal, figurative, he will reign or is reigning. We don't know when he's coming back. We should wait for him. Um, He will judge everyone, Christians, non-Christians alike. Non-Christians will be condemned eternally. Uh, and we will be judged as righteous ultimately and we'll get to reign with Christ forever in a new heaven and a new earth which he will establish and build, uh, which will be filled with his glory and his presence. So, this, as Christians, should inspire us. We know how the story ends. We know the ending. Uh, We should live hopeful of that day. Um, And just like in Revelation, one of my favorite verses of all Scripture, um, When Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon, um, and 
And all the multitudes say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. So, that's our hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, um, for the truths that you've given us in your scripture. Uh, we thank you that you are coming back and that, um, that you will judge the nations, that you will reign um, and that we will reign with you in glory someday. Um, we pray that though these, um, these topics can be divisive and troublesome um, and hard in a lot of ways, um, that we'll continue to seek your truth in everything, that we won't be um, neglectors of right doctrine, but that we will strive to know you more fully and to know your word rightly. And I pray for the rest of our service today as we worship you. I pray that you can get glory and honor from all that we do and say. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.